Well, if you were to guess which instrument I played as a, ch as a, guitar as a child, like middle school and uh, high school and whatnot, and besides a piano, what kind of instrument do you think I'd play? Like, look at me. What kind of instrument do you play? You think something? Drums? Yeah. I don't got that kind of skill. Clarinet. Maybe the flute, right? Something nice and lightweight. Uh, but no, I played the alto saxophone. Uh, yeah, I know, right? Um, starting in fifth grade. Yeah, there I was. So cute. I told my mom to send me a really dorky picture of me in an outfit, and that's what she sent. So, Well, in sixth grade, we moved to this new town, and there was a middle school there with 6th, 7th, and 8th. And for whatever reason, they, like, quarantined the 6th graders on the third floor so you wouldn't, like, interact, you know, protect. 6th grades, I don't know, they're real fragile, I guess. So you put them on the top floor. Well, every single band day, I had to carry this such a heavy instrument. My friend, like, has her flute, like, in her pocket. I'm like, oh, lugging this thing up like six flights of stairs, you know, like back and forth to get to the top. And I finagle it into my locker only to, during band, have to go down all those flights of steps across the building and up two more flights of steps for actual band rehearsal. Okay. So I was very strong at the time. No, I wasn't. Not at all. <laughs> um, I was not awesome. I was not like Kenny G or anything, but I did all right, you know. But then in seventh grade, I decided to join the jazz band. Has anybody been in jazz band before? Yes, okay. Now, jazz band and regular band are totally different animals, right? In regular band, the goal is to stay as close to the written music as possible, okay? Exact notes, exact beats, exact rhythms. And basically, the person or the group that can duplicate the music the best, the most accurately, with the most skill, they win, right? Yay, you did it. You played the song as it was meant to be played. Now, that's my kind of music, okay? Very specific instructions. Just do what you're told. Like, I am good when I have very clear expectations. I thrive in that kind of environment, okay? But jazz band, not so much. Okay, because jazz band is like all about like the feeling and the rhythm, right? Not necessarily counting it out precisely like a military march. You know, there's a swing to it and like a, and like a little wiggle and, uh, and a mischievousness that comes into the music. And so, and then as you're playing along, I'm like, all right, I'm figuring this out and I'm getting the vibe. I'm kind of moving with it. And then they introduce improv. Anybody know what improv is? Improvisation? Do you know what it is? Because uh, improvisation is when a uh, musician is given a certain framework, okay? They're given, okay, these are the chords, this is the key we're in, this is the general rhythm and speed. Now, it's a sad song, or it's like a happy song, or it's a funny song. You get the vibe, and that's it. And then they, they cut you loose, okay? They just play all willy-nilly, out of control, out of control, okay? So in seventh grade, I'm sitting there playing my music, concentrating, reading the notes, like putting my best effort in, okay? And Mr. Workman, our band teacher, is like, okay, all right, all right, Stephanie, improv, go! And I would immediately panic because I would say, man, there are no notes in front of me. I cannot do what you have asked. And then I would cry. Right? Because I, that's obviously what you do. And the guy next to me is like, I got this. You know, and I'm like, this is not the band class for me. No, it is not. Because improv is something unique. It's not meant to be an exact replica of the song at all. It's supposed to be this in the moment, unscripted, full of new life kind of music. So you get the basic structure of the song, like the chord families and the tempo or the speed, and you get kind of the feel of the song. 
And then the musician creates something entirely new, something that's kind of alive and embodied, something that's fresh, and usually not in isolation. A lot of times musicians will improv back and forth, like one musician will improv for a minute, then the other one will come in there, will kind of respond with a similar but unique take on the song, and it bounces back and forth. Have you seen the movie like Drumline? You know what I'm talking about? Where they're like, da -da 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 -da. oh, you can do that, watch me. Da -da 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 -da. You know, and they go back and forth between each other, and the creativity feeds off the other to create something new corporately to create this beautiful piece of music, right? Now, while I am certainly still one to say, give me sheet music or give me death, I see the beauty. I see the possibility for fresh expression for imagination, for the creation of something that is vibrant and alive for this moment in time, not just duplicating what has come before. I mean, Beethoven is great, but there's more music to be played, right? I mean, Shakespeare wrote some really good literature, but there are more words to be said. Vince Lombardi was a legendary coach, but there is more to learn and discover about the game. So the question is, is there room for some improv? Having mastered the content, the rules of the game, or the notes learned, or the writing techniques, is there room for something new? In the moment, a fresh embodiment of skill and beauty. Now, Eugene Peterson is a pastor and an author that I deeply admire, and he asked that very same question of the church. He says, we have this story of God. We have the music of God's saving action in history. We have borne witness to God's redemptive work in Jesus who died to rescue us from sin and death. And, we have, and he was resurrected to new life. So we have this raw material, this, this story of God, this framework of redemption. Now, the question becomes, what might it look like for the church living faithfully in the now to do a little improv? figuring out what it means to live this life in this time and in this town, following Jesus, not repeating what's already come before us, but living into the story of God in a new and fresh, alive way as the Spirit leads us, corporately, cooperatively, living out that Spirit. Peterson calls this kind of improv the practice of resurrection. Now, if you know anything about me right now, resurrection is on my mind all the time as I'm writing a book about that very topic right now. But this idea of resurrection, when we talk about it, we almost always think exclusively in terms of Easter, don't we? When somebody says resurrection, we think, oh, yeah, that's what happened at Easter. Jesus was dead. Then he got undead, right? Resurrected to new life. But the thing is, that we rarely talk about, or sometimes we'll talk about how we'll be raised at the end as well, but what we rarely do talk about is what the resurrection actually means for the church, like right now. Like not just when we die, but like today, okay? And what might it look like for us to embrace Jesus's story, not only what was done on our behalf and all of creation, but a story that shapes this moment right now, inviting us to practice resurrection, to live out this fresh, embodied, contextual, cooperative way of faithfulness that sings the song of resurrection to a world mired in death. Now, Peterson says, the church, us, 
we are the appointed gathering of named people in a particular place, i.e. Mountain Home, who practices a life of resurrection in a world in which death gets the biggest headlines. Can I get an amen on that? Death of nations, death of civilization, death of marriage, death of careers, obituaries without end, death by war, by murder, by accident, by starvation. And in a world that is so defined by death, we, the church, practice resurrection. We practice resurrection through this intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life, in life out of death, life that trumps death, life that gets the last word. Jesus kind of life. Now that's where this idea of improvisation comes in. We have the story. We have the playbook, the notes, the writing techniques. We have the tools now What song are we going to create together? Can we imagine resurrection life lived out among us in this town, in this time, and in this place? Can we experiment and try and fail and try again together as we seek to live into this narrative of resurrection life? The narrative of resurrection life, and this is what you have to hear, the the narrative of resurrection life declares that God restores what seems long past any point of redemption. We're talking about dry bones, people. But the God of resurrection calls us forward to say, do you believe and will you live as if it were true that I can breathe life into dead things? That is what it means to practice resurrection instead of the story of death and despair and fatalism. Now, here's the question, right? We are surrounded by stories of death and destruction and despair. How do we even do this? How do we live into a narrative of resurrection? How can new life emerge amidst death? How can we embody hope amidst despair and rebellion? How is it even possible? I'll tell you. Paul tells us. Because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in our very bodies, even now, breathing resurrection life into what feels so dead. It's possible Because the Spirit, as Peterson says, the Spirit is forming the church to be a colony of God's kingdom in a land of death. An outpost that embodies the kingdom of God way as we await the return of the king. We're not twiddling our thumbs, people. We are living into the kingdom now. And so as we, with our hearts shaped by the rhythm of God's story, by the tempo and the feel, we lean into the music and we improvise. Learning to live out resurrection life in this moment, in our relationships, in forgiveness, in reconciliation, in serving and giving and loving and nurturing, singing God's song of redemption together. But in our own unique voice, as Mountain Home, Church of the Nazarene. Now, it is easy, as I say all these big and lofty things about the church, it is so easy as we imagine the beautiful, unique song that we might sing as a congregation 
to uh, that we can embody in the resurre- resurrection life that we can live into to slip into what I call ecclesial idealism. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's this idea that the church is just so awesome and so beautiful and it's easy to think you're so wonderful and we're, we're living out this resurrection life together and it's so great. Oh my word, I love these people. It's just so great. And I do, I do love you. But it's easy to lose sight of the ever-present reality that the church, us, as beautiful and as resurrection-powered as we are, we are still comprised of broken people like you and me. People who say yes to Jesus one day, but also fail the next. People who seek after God, but are also blinded by their own sin on occasion. And so if we have bought into this idealism that tells us about the church without acknowledging the brokenness and sin within us, we will quickly become what? Disillusioned, okay? And that's when people leave the church because they have made the church an idol. And when it fails them, they're like, I don't want anything to do with that because they have failed to take seriously the consequences of sin at work even among us Christ followers, Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself will actually destroy that community. He says, the person who loves this dream of community will destroy it, but the person who actually loves the people in the community will create it. See, idealism is not the way. And in fact, a little disillusionment with the church can sometimes do us a little bit of good because it reminds us that the church exists not by our own power, okay? Not because we're awesome and y'all are talented and we're really, you know, energetic and young because I'm going to get old, just so you know. That will eventually wear off the shine, okay? It is not because of our own ability to live out this resurrection life. No, Bonhoeffer says that... Uh, says, therefore, will not the very moment of our great disillusionment with the church, with my brother and sister, be so good for me because it so thoroughly teaches us that both of us can never live by our own words and deeds, but only by the one word and deed that binds us together, which is the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, right? The bright day of Christian community dawns when the morning mists of our dreamy visions are finally lifted. It is only in and by Christ that we exist as a community, not because you're awesome and not because we have a certain skill set, but only because we have been brought together by Christ who calls us into this resurrection life of forgiveness and reconciliation and love when it's inconvenient and painful, right? Now, for the rest of our summer journey, uh, we are going to be diving into the book of Ephesians. And it's going to guide us on this journey of improvisation, of, of this practice of resurrection. Living faithfully with a clear vision of the church. Not idealized, but also not disillusioned, but with a full understanding that it is God who creates the church. And God alone. Ephesians is, you can go ahead and turn there if you want to, Ephesians 1. Ephesians is a really unique book because a lot of the books in the New Testament were written to address a certain issue. For example, the Corinthians, they were a hot mess, okay? There was immorality springing up all over the place, people doing all kinds of weird things. And so Paul had to write some letters to address the shenanigans in Corinth, right? 
Or the book of Galatians, the people were beginning to buy into this lie that in order to follow Jesus, you also had to follow all the Jewish traditions. And Paul says, what's going on? It's only by Christ that you are saved. And so he wrote a letter to address that. Now, Ephesians wasn't written to address a specific issue. Rather, it was written as a celebration. Ephesians was written as this great word of praise for what God has done in all creation and what God wants to create and, in fact, is creating now among God's people, the church. So Ephesians is both this celebration, but also this challenge, an invitation for us, really, the church, to join that song of redemption. And it gives us the raw material we need to practice resurrection together to improvise, to create something new among us in this time and in this place that faithfully embodies a fresh vision of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So we're going to read together starting chapter 1, verse 3. And here's a challenge for you as you read. Uh, How many of you, there's a little little poll here, how many of you are Bible writers? You write in your Bible. I see that hand because my hand's up too. Right? And other people, you were like, you Bible desecrators, <laughs> don't do that, right? Well, whatever you do, that's totally fine. But as we're following along this morning, I want you to consider the verbs, the action words. Who is doing what in this passage, okay? Circle it if you want, or if you don't want to write, you can just look at the word really hard and hope you remember it, okay? Here we go. i all about the Bible writing, so there you go. Uh, verse 3. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather all things up in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope in Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, what did you see? What did you see as you followed along with the verbs, right? The action words. Did you notice who is doing the action here? Anybody noticed? Yeah, it's God. It's God. Not us. It is all God. And even the verbs that do apply to us, they're passive, which means somebody is acting on us. This entire passage is God. We are the recipients in every way. Paul is saying, look what God has done. 
This is the raw material with which we improvise resurrection life. So let's look at some of those verbs. The first one, it says, God has blessed us. Now, this blessing language runs all the way through Scripture. You go all the way back to Genesis 1, you're going to find it, where he says God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and, you know, all those wonderful things. All the way to Revelation, where he says, Jesus says, see, I'm coming soon and blessed be the one who keeps the words of prophecy in this book. God's intention from beginning to end has always been blessing, kindness, generosity, and goodness. And that stream continues through Noah, through Abraham, through the people of God, and through Jesus. And it is a blessing that has always been interwoven with a calling. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's not just you're blessed because you're awesome. It's you're blessed to be a what? A blessing. You are shown kindness that you might show kindness. You are shown goodness and mercy that we too might show goodness and mercy. God has blessed us. It is the foundation of our very existence. But it also says what? Next in your verse, it says God has chosen us. Now, sometimes as Wesleyans, this language makes us uncomfortable, right? Because at first glance, it's like as if God chose without our consent and then abandon other people without consideration. Like, I pick you and you and you and the, the rest of you, you're all on your own, right? Like, it's only who's the teacher's pet that gets picked by God, right? That's the vibe I kind of get when I first read this. But this text is not about who's in and who's out and God chooses and this one and this one, but not you. That's not at all what Paul is talking about. What Paul is trying to emphasize to us here is God's initiative, Right? Initiative always, always starts with God. Now, you need to hear this. We do not come to God because we get a hankering for some salvation, okay? We do not come to God because we've made a cool, cool, clear-headed decision to do so. We do not come to God because we just decided one day on a whim, you know what, I think I need some God in my life. I think I'm going to need some God. No. You come to God because God's Spirit invites you. God's Spirit is wooing you and drawing you, and we respond. Even before we can name the wooing, we respond to God's invitation to be holy and blameless in love. And so from the very, very beginning, God has chosen us, extended to us this invitation, and we are invited to allow ourselves to be chosen, right, as we exercise our free will. So God has chosen us, but God has also destined us to be adopted as his children. Now, when I was in high school, my family adopted a little boy. It was a long process of paperwork and whatnot. And we had just gotten word that all the paperwork was finalized, and he was officially going to be joining the family. But he hadn't moved in yet. And so he was visiting, we were talking, and I said, I don't even remember what I said, but I said something along the lines of, well, my mom said we should do such and such. And he interrupted me. He goes, you, you, no, 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 no. You mean mom said we should do such and such. And right in that moment, he claimed his seat at the table, didn't he? It's not my mom, it's mom, right? I am a part of this family. And that moment he claimed his role as my brother, children to the same mother. Now I'll tell you that story, while it is still not over, has not been a smooth redemptive path to wholeness. My brother has taken himself in and out of the fold of our family with his choices. Sometimes he comes and he wants to be a part, and other times he leaves and doesn't want anything to do with us. But he chooses to be at the table or not. The invitation has been extended, right? 
Now, God has always desired from the beginning of time to bring us, too, into the family as well. And again, it's not this God did this thing without my permission or participation. But no, it's this declaration from the beginning of time that God's intention has always been to bring all of us to the dinner table as the family of God. That's always been the plan. But parents, and you get this, we have hopes and dreams and plans for our kids. We got those, right? That's what good parents do. But the, <laughs> when we try to force those plans on our children, it doesn't usually go well. Like, I'm beginning to learn this as my children are exerting their will at five and two. Like, they don't necessarily want mom's plan, right? How rude of them. How rude. Seriously. But the reason why is because as humans, we, we strain and we strive against something being forced upon us. And so God, he's not trying to force his, say, you're joining the family. Get to the table, kids. But rather, he invites and he woos and he bids us come near and join him for dinner. The initiative is God's. The response is ours. And so we see all this language of God's initiative inviting and wooing us in. And then it says, and God has what? Redeemed us. See, the nuance of this language is easy to miss because it's slave language. It's language that we're not familiar with. But the the word that Paul is using here, he's saying, this is as if someone spent all their money to buy a slave and upon receiving the certificate of ownership, rips it up and says, you are free. And that is exactly what God has done for us. He has purchased us from sin and death and he has ripped it up and set us free into abundant life. And again, whose initiative? It's God's. God is the redeemer. We are the redeemed always. And so God has redeemed us, but he has also forgiven us. And this is not a sweep it under the rug, let's pretend it never happened kind of forgiveness, right? No, it is God looks at us. He looks at our sin square in the face, knowing that we have done wrong, knowing we have put ourselves first. He looks at us and he says, I see you. I see your sin very clearly. And I forgive you. I release it. You are free. God did it. God does it. Not us. Right? And then Paul goes on to say he's, he's redeemed us and he's forgiven us, but he's also made known to us the mystery of his plan. And when I first read that, I'm like, he did? Because what, what mystery are we talking about here? And as I've been reading, I've been trying to understand what is this mystery? And he says, the mystery of God's plan has been always to bring all things together under Christ. And Peterson says it so beautifully in the message. I'm just going to read you that. He says, God thought of everything. He provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in Christ to everything in deepest heaven and everything on planet Earth. Everything brought together under the Lordship of Christ. Now sometimes, some days, I long for something I cannot name. Have you ever been there? Like I see the beauty in creation and it's so beautiful and yet... Or I look into my kids' eyes and they're like getting along and it's awesome and they're sparkling. I'm like, oh, I love being a mother for these 10 minutes. This is so beautiful. And yet. Or I I rest at, at ease in my husband's love knowing that we are secure and I am safe. And yet. My heart longs for something that I cannot name. And, and I think this is it. I long for the day when all things in all of creation, 
are gathered up under the lordship of Jesus. When all things are set in their proper place, all things are rightly ordered, all things are pointed in the right direction. All wounds are healed, all sicknesses set right, all broken relationships restored, all systemic evil torn down. And what a gift that God has led us in on his intention for what he is doing and plans to do with creation, which is to restore it and bring it under the lordship of Jesus. And I long for that day. But God also gives us inheritance. And I'm not talking about heaven necessarily, like this faraway, floaty-off place. When he's talking about inheritance, he says he has given us this inheritance as a vocation. He says in Christ, he's given us this inheritance why? In order that we might live for the praise of his glory. Like now. Not someday. Live for his glory now. Peterson said, it is in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're actually living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us. Had designs on us for glorious living part of the overall purpose. He is working in everything and in everyone. God has given us an inheritance, a vocation to live into that kingdom of God life now. And finally, one of our last verbs is God has marked us with the Holy Spirit. Now, when I see marked, I think of like cattle branding and that is not at all appealing to me. I'm like, Lord, please don't let that be what you're talking about because ow, right? But the language that Paul often uses when he talks about the Holy Spirit and being marked by the Holy Spirit is not this physical mark on our body, but rather it is the gift, the, uh, the down payment of what is to come, and that down payment is the Holy Spirit. See, N.T. Wright, instead of talk, you know, uh, akin to a, like a cattle brand, he talks about an engagement ring. Now, you see, when somebody has an engagement ring, they're not married yet, but a promise has been made of what's to come, right? of a life together, of a future full of hope and joy. And God says, or Paul says in this text, I've given you, I have marked you with the Holy Spirit. This down payment that promises to reveal what is to come. That sense you have in your heart of encountering the Spirit, being moved by the Spirit, being convicted by the Spirit. That is just a taste of what is to come in terms of intimacy with the Lord. It is the engagement ring placed on our hand by God. What a beautiful image, isn't it? a promise of a life of unity with God. Now, you see all of these all of these verbs, this blessed and chosen and adopted and redeemed and forgiven and revealed and all of these things, all of it, if you look in your text, look at it again, says in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, in Christ, to Christ. It is in Christ alone that any of this happens. It is in Christ alone that we live and that we move and we have our being. And Paul says it so beautifully in 2 Corinthians. He says, for in him, Jesus, every one of God's promises is a yes. Oh, that is good news, people. Every one of God's promises finds its yes in Jesus. In Christ, every one of God's promises is a yes. Everything God said he would do to redeem and restore and save is a yes in Jesus. God's promise to create a people, the church, for himself, to partner with him in the redemptive work, that is a yes in Jesus who is the head. 
Not a yes because of our initiative. Not a yes because we're so cool we can figure things out. Not a yes because we all work so hard to make a church happen. No, it's a yes because of resurrected Jesus. He is the one who makes us a church. And he is the one who empowers us to live into that resurrection life. What God has done in Jesus is the foundation of it all of God's mission of redemption and creation and a part of this formation of God's people as the church. And this is the thing. What God has done in Jesus, raising him to new life, he has promised to do the same for us, raising us to new life. And we, the church, as Christ's body, we join in that redemption, resurrection song now, in this time and in this town and among this people And I want you to hear this as a church. We are imperfect, but we are being made whole in Jesus. We are broken, but we are being healed in Jesus. We are often asleep, unaware of our own sin, but we are ever being awakened by the Spirit. We stumble, but we are empowered by the resurrection spirit of God, to walk forward into new creation, kingdom of God, life. It's not about us. It's about what God has done in Christ and wants to do in his church, the body of Christ. Now, after Paul lays all that stuff out of what God has done, he prays this prayer over the church in Ephesus, and I want to pray it over you today, over us as a body. It says this, I ask the God of our master, Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing him personally. That your eyes would be focused and clear so that you can see exactly what he's calling you to do, to grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life he has for his followers. Oh, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him. Endless energy boundless strength. All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from the death from death, and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule, and not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all, has the final word on everything, and at the center of all of this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world, but the world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts and by which he fills everything with his presence. The church is Christ's body. In the church, through the church, is how Christ speaks and acts. And by the church, God's people, he fills everything with his presence. May it be so. May Christ teach us to sing the song, the God song of redemption, of forgiveness and reconciliation, of glory and of grace. In this time, in this place, among these people, as we practice resurrection life together, living as a colony of heaven and a land of death as we await our coming king. Amen and amen. Let us pray.
Father God, we thank you for the glory of your word spoken over us today. And Lord, we acknowledge that all good comes from you. You have blessed us and chosen us. You have redeemed and forgiven us. You have made us a part of your good work. And you are inviting us to yourself. It is not our own initiative, but it is only because what have you have done. It is not up to us to build the church. This is your body. You are doing the work. But Lord, we have been called and invited to participate in that resurrection life. And not just waiting for that, oh, that perfect church that's going to be exactly right and have all the right people. But no, Lord, in this time, in this place, with these people, with even me, with all the ways that I fall short, the ways we fall short, you would have invited us to be a part of this church, to be a part of your kingdom breaking in, even in Idaho. And so, Lord, would you captivate our imagination? Would you help us to live in to this idea of practicing your resurrection, declaring in the face of death that you don't get the last word? Because the tomb is empty, because the spirit of resurrection is living within us, you are making things new as we say yes to you. So, Lord, as we wait and we trust, and we hope and believe that you are our coming king. May we live into our kingdom citizenship even now, practicing resurrection life in this place. We love you, and we trust you. In Jesus' name. Beloved, would you extend your hands to receive the benediction, the good word today? Beloved, Christ Church, may you go forth from this place empowered by the Spirit to practice resurrection in this place, in this time, with these people. Go in action and go in peace. Lord, is name.